And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's trying that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. Yes, indeed, it is Friday. Another edition number 75 of Climate Change Roundtable. It's amazing to think we've done 75 of these things so far. This one is particularly special because this may be the last normal Friday that we have ever. Because this coming week, the signs are there that Joe Biden might declare a climate emergency. Oh, no! Seriously, that's what the topic of this show is about climate emergency, and possible climate lockdowns. So with us today, we have our usual suspects and a special guest. We have Linnea and Sterling Burnett. And we also have the Donald, who normally is on the In the Tank podcast at the Heartland Institute, which runs on Thursdays, by the way. Tune in if you'd like. And uh, we're going to talk today about, yes, the possibility that President Biden is going to succumb to pressure and, and declare a climate emergency. And uh, there's an old saying that uh, the S rolls downhill after that. Well, just wait if that happens. Before we get to the rest of the podcast, I want to tell you about a great event coming up that you will not want to miss. The Heartland Institute's 39th Anniversary Benefit Dinner. It will be held Friday, September 8th at the Marriott Chicago O'Hare Hotel, a convenient place for people in Chicagoland as well as people flying in from out of town. Our featured speaker is John Stossel, one of the few libertarians who has ever risen to the top of American media. He's the winner of 19 Emmys, a Peabody Award, and five honors from the National Press Club. You might remember this veteran of ABC News from the show 2020 back in the day, his show on Fox, or his popular YouTube videos. John has for decades been a tireless voice for liberty, exposing government abuse and overreach. His voice is needed now more than ever in the wake of a federal government that has grabbed vast new powers over our economy and our society. We are also honored to award former Illinois state representative and gubernatorial candidate Jeannie Ives as the 2023 Heartland Liberty Prize winner. A West Point graduate, Jeannie has fought for liberty her whole life, and her time in public office was marked by strong conservative leadership and unwavering commitment to the taxpayer's bottom line. She now has her own radio show on AM560 to further the conservative message. You will not want to miss this chance to meet John Stossel and Jeannie Ives and hear their inspiring speeches to hundreds of your fellow lovers of liberty. Get your tickets today and join us September 8th to help support the Heartland Institute and our shared mission of protecting liberty and our precious constitutional rights. For more information, visit heartland.org or call 312-377-4000. Again, visit heartland.org or call 312-377-4000 for tickets. We hope to see you there with John Stossel and Jeannie Eyes for an unforgettable evening. That happens. Anyway, 
So let's get right to it. First of all, we're going to talk about some of the crazy climate news of the week. And some of this climate news is likely to be used as justifications for declaring a climate emergency. And so um, first, let's go to the Maui wildfires. Now, you've probably all heard about this. Uh, the death toll rises. As some, some of the different headlines are here. The death toll rises as climate change wrecks havens. And um, there's another headline that says how climate change contributed to the starting Maui blaze. And then it just goes on and on. I mean, you can find dozens of dozens of stories like this in the media where they are trying to attribute climate change to the Maui wildfire. And, but the connection is just not there. Thinking intelligent people who are not journalists actually look behind the scenes and try to find some of this stuff as to what's really going on. And we've got an article, or I have an article rather, up on what's up with that, but it's called Wind-Driven Wildfires on Maui. And in, in this case, Professor Clifford Mass up at the University of Washington went through and looked at this stuff logically and scientifically. And he concludes, basically, that it's mostly a combination of grasses and weathers, kind of a, a confluence of a bunch of different factors that hit all at once in one way. And, you know, although the media is trying to argue that climate change is driving this, the bottom line is, is that wildfires on the Hawaiian Islands are very common. And in this case, uh, with Maui, it's not just the fact that wildfires are common. It's a combination of the terrain and the weather patterns. Now, I've been to Maui. I've been to Lahaina. I've, I know exactly what that terrain looked like. And um, to the east, we have a very wet uh, area uh, of the, the islands. And it's all that, it's that way on all the Hawaiian islands because we've got the prevailing east to west trade winds. So what happens is, is that all the moisture gets dumped on the east side of the island, and then it goes upslope onto the mountain volcano and then comes down on the other side, and it heats up and dries out. And so as a result, you have this hot, dry wind coming on the western slopes. Now add to that the fact that Maui used to be a big sugarcane plantation. Uh, there was sugarcane operations going all the way through the 1930s up until finally in 2016 when they closed the last sugar mill. And what happened is, is when they closed the last sugar mill on Maui, the, they, they, they harvested the last crop and left the fields barren. So what happened? You can see here on this rainfall map, look at that. You can see all of these different islands, all the west sides are extremely dry, where the east sides are really wet. So what happened is, is that non-native grasses, savanna-type grasses that have been imported by settlers and, and so forth and so on, took over these large tracts of land on Maui. And you can see it when you drive along the, the coastal highway up into Lahaina. You can see it up on the hills, these cleared areas that are nothing but grassland. So what happens? You get some spark or some arsonist or whatever it might be, and that sets that on fire. Well, that by itself is a problem, but add to that that they had 60 mile per hour wind gust at the same time, and boom, you've got this inferno blowing fire right into Lahaina. Guys, you've, you've seen this story. Uh, what, what do you think about it? It's a real tragedy. Um, I mean, it 
burn down that entire town. I'm not going to try to pronounce any of the words there. I've never been to Hawaii and I, I, I'm not very good at pronouncing uh, any of the city names there, but um, I just, it's the same with any major disaster that happens in the news. If it's weather related, it's immediately attributed to climate change. Um, and if it is some kind of other disaster, they try to make some other kind of convenient political spin on it. Um, and it's just gross, you know, it, but we all knew if there was going to be big fires this year anywhere in the world, no matter what the cause was, they were going to attribute it to climate change as if wildfires never happened until um, we started having a modest warming of, over the last hundred years. It's, it's just bad all around. Yeah. They're not they're not even dancing on the graves of the dead. They're dancing on, on the on the still smoldering corpses. And it's it's like you said, gross. And um the key, you know, we see pictures and pictures tell a thousand stories, but you have to know the background to the pictures. Um, and that's what we do here is we look at the data and it turns out that as bad as these fires are, wildfires aren't unusual in Hawaii, um, this is a dry area. You know, Anthony went through the, the litany of uh, factors that have uh, combined to cause the severity and extent of this wildfire. And um, when you look at the evidence, you can't see the fingerprint, so-called fingerprint of climate change. Yeah, and yeah. The and it, it like oh. you say, it's gross that they're that they're. Well, the one thing I don't understand about uh, this story and, and all of these other stories where, you know, like you said, the headline, it always tries to attribute this to, to climate change or something as if us putting some solar panels in Montana is going to like fix this, this thing that just happened. <laughs> and like, to me, at least it would be a little bit more um, balanced if they said, oh, yeah, this is this is result of climate change, but we should do A, B and C right now to make sure that these things don't happen but that's always not in the headline that's never even in paragraph 12 of these paragraph uh, of these yeah. articles it's always specifically about climate change yeah I, I, they, they, they they focus on an indirect distant solution as opposed to a direct uh intervention that probably could have prevented this wildfire had they cleared the grass right had they planted right. covered trees replanted the native lands when the sugar plantations closed, but you let, you let grass that dries out build up. We get it here in Texas. They're called grass fires and you hope someone's around to put them out. Um, yeah. Something of that magnitude, once it gets going with those kinds of winds is impossible to even combat. And it's just like the scenario that happened with the town of paradise in California in 2018. We had a spark from a power line. We had massive winds roaring through the canyon. The winds acted like a blowtorch for this dry brush that had not been cleared, and it torched the town. And, of course, people in the media and all the activists immediately jumped on, it's climate change, it's climate change. No, it was started by a PG&E power line. It was started by high wind. It was fed by high winds and a lack of forest management. And it's the same thing here. Lack of land management, a spark, and high winds. 
Yep. I actually know someone who lives in Hawaii who his like job that he does in landscaping is doing native landscaping and ripping out some of the invasive stuff and trying to like exclusively plant native species um, for businesses and homes and everything. And those are the kind of solutions that you can actually make some kind of an, an effort towards stopping wildfires in some of these areas. I've heard, I don't know, I have not researched this to the extent that I probably should, but I have heard that California has a lot of non-native eucalyptus, mm -hmm. which as people from Australia know, is highly flammable, the oils inside of them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so- it, Well, it also has a lot of- uh, Sorry. Oh, no, no. And, and I think it's supposed to catch fire. Um, and so when you're in an area that's already fire prone and then you add in non-native plants that are super, super flammable, um, you know, that's a recipe for disaster as well. But back in the, you know, late 1800s when they plant the things, that's not something that they thought about necessarily. Um, so it, it just, you know, the chickens come home to roost on a lot of this stuff. Well, and overgrazing in the West um, has uh, allowed a lot of cheat grass to move in, which is very fire prone. Uh, and hard to uh, hard to eradicate. So I mean, you know, now that's uh, I, I take it it's probably not cheap grass in Hawaii. I could be wrong. Maybe it is, uh, but it is a problem if you don't manage lands. Um, you know, w it's it's not just this wildfire in Hawaii that brought this home to me, but as some of you may know, another issue that I have worked on in the past, uh, did some work research on in the past, was firearms issues. And every time there's a mass shooting, the anti-gun, the gun control folks are quick to blame it on the firearms as if they leap up and fire themselves and load themselves. And the, the answer is always gun control as opposed to looking at the factors that led to this particular shooting and how it might have been prevented and how we can prevent these in the future. They never explain how gun control is going to prevent a, a shooting like that. Well, it's the same thing with climate change. No matter what the terrible incident, um, climate change is to blame. And the answer is, well, if we shut off using fossil fuels in the next 20 years, 100 years from now, these things won't happen. As opposed to, let's get out in the field and start clearing some brush. Let's log some dead trees and remove them. Let's harden some buildings so when hurricanes come next year, not 100 years from now, uh, people won't die. That's so much harder. That's too logical. That, yeah, that's, that's way too hard. It. That's too logical. I mean, I could write these articles. Some bad weather thing happens, climate change. I don't need to do any research. I don't need to look up any books or historical facts or anything like that. Climate yeah. change. I got, I got a deadline. It's in five minutes. I need to put this article out. That's what's going through with these people's minds. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the next topic uh, this week, hurricanes. Yes, there's been a lot of stories about hurricanes. And NOAA released their updated 2023 Atlantic hurricane season outlook. And if we scroll down on that, there's a highlighted section on that that talks about the numbers that they put out. Uh, should be a highlighted section anyway. Well, maybe not. Um, in any event, basically, they're saying that now, after having a very quiet hurricane season, there's going to be five major hurricanes and you know, they don't really get into the whys of it, but they basically say their prediction is now from a near normal all the way up to an above normal season. 
And um, the updated outlook is basically saying that the water temperatures, I guess, from El Nino are going to drive all of this. Uh, and then in the media, we've got other stories like this one where they say ocean heat is off the charts. They're talking about the amount of, of stored heat on the surface of the ocean. You know, there's been the sea surface temperature uh, alarms and so forth that have been talking about, you know, how bad the hurricane season's been. Well, or would be. The problem is, is that, you know, we've had these higher temps in the Atlantic this summer and, you know, nothing's come of it. And the reason that nothing has come of it is just simply by one factor. And I can show you basically one picture that says everything about all of this. And that's dust. Yes. Dust from the Sahara mm -hmm. is basically tamping down all the hurricane activity in the Atlantic. And this dust, uh, as you can see here in this one picture, is basically spreading across the Cape Verde Islands where these hurricanes, uh, tropical waves, typically start forming and then they turn into hurricane. It's going all the way across the Atlantic and into, you know, the Caribbean and into Florida. People in Florida this year have reported seeing dusty skies. And so this dust is basically tamping down the hurricanes. Now, if it were the, alt if it were the opposite, and it was making more hurricanes, you know, it would get blamed on climate change, but it's just a prevailing wind pattern. And it's a dryness of the Sahara, blowing that dust off the Sahara right into the ocean. With that much dust in the atmosphere, it basically tamps down convective formation and hurricane formation. It's so, also, sorry, Anthony. Go ahead. Well, it's also, it's the physics of hurricanes. They work like storm fronts, right? Where, there's differences between the, the air temperatures and the surface temperatures of the water. And here we're having a year where a lot of the air temperatures are up too. So the differences, they're not growing between the surface temperatures and the water. That's also, I think, suppressing some of the hurricane formation. But all we can say for sure is they predicted much more hurricanes than we've seen so far. Um, it's been a real quiet season. I think only one hurricane has formed so far, a, a very short-lived uh, uh, class one hurricane. There's been maybe three or four tropical storms, but none of them have made, you know, significant landfall. And we're almost, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching mid-August. Hurricane season started June 1st. Hurricanes we know form as early as May. Now, the hurricane season runs officially till the end of November, and typically late August through November is when the worst period is, but we've been pretty lucky so far, despite all the portents that they talked about. They're not just now talking about sea surface temperatures. They were talking about sea surface temperatures back in May. They were, they, they, they were talking about uh, a bad hurricane season in May. So um, it's a lot like the wildfires, honestly. I mean, not, not in Hawaii, but if you look at the West, wildfires are way down. It's a lot like drought that we've been, we hear so much about every year. Have, when's the last time you saw a headline about drought? Well, you haven't. There's a reason. Drought across the United States is way, way down. There are only a, a very few small spots with severe drought. So, 
the normal things they'd be talking about this time of year. Headlines on hurricanes, headlines on wildfires in the West, headlines on drought. You're not seeing any of it. Are they blaming climate change for the good weather? For the relatively calm, non-extreme uh, weather that's going on here? No, I don't hear any headlines about that. Climate change reducing drought, climate change preventing Western wildfires, uh, climate change uh, su su um, uh, suppressing hurricane formation. Don't see it. And yet that's, but, and yet hurricane formation is not, has not occurred. It's way down. Yeah. So it just, you know, it's what I've always said. Climate change has become the universal boogeyman. You know, we've got wetter than normal weather, it's climate change. We've got drier than normal weather, it's climate change. We've got more fires, it's climate change. We have less fires, you know, it's just on and on. It has become the universal blame boogeyman for just anything that is perceived as abnormal. Um, because these folks that are writing these stories, particularly the Associated Press, they have a mission, a paid mission to go out and gin this stuff up. I mean, the, the, the Associated Press got a, a million plus grant, I believe it was, a couple of years ago. And they're, they're, you know, there's documentation on this, basically to push climate change stories. And they are, of course, when, when they push one, then it goes out to all of the newspapers, all the periodicals, and it gets regurgitated ad, huh, uh, ad infinitum everywhere without anyone checking it. And so you get one person like, you know, uh, Bernstein writing for the Associated Press that can influence hundreds or thousands of articles throughout the globe without anyone fact-checking it. All right, let's go on to our next topic, the month in review. Now, uh, every month, Steve Malloy of JunkScience.com publishes <coughs> a list of all of his crazy climate things and it comes up with a fact-check. And we publish it on climate realism. And as you scroll down through this, you can see some of the topics um, that are on the board here for this particular one. And, and, you know, here we've got the hottest temperature ever. Well, you look at satellite, eh, not there. Uh, the era of global boiling we talked about last week, you know. How absurd. Hottest day in 125,000 years. Well, gosh, we don't even have thermometers until like 1750. So how are they figuring 125,000 years? Well, it's proxies, you know, things like tree rings and, and diatoms and ice cores and stuff like that. But that's not real measurements. Those are guesses. And, and that's what they base this stuff on. So this one is particularly funny because every year this one goes back and forth. And so uh, our president, James Taylor, has documented this one. The Atlantic current is going to collapse by 2025, but you can go back the last 20 years and it's just literally like clockwork. Every other year, they switch the story. It's going to go from it's collapsing. No, no, it, it's getting stronger. And every time they blame climate change on it, it's just it's absurd. And, and the thing is, no matter which direction it's going, in the stories that say it's 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 uh, slowing, it says ah, it'll create all sorts of weather disasters that we've got to uh, address by fighting climate change. But if it's speeding up, oh, it'll create all sorts of weather disasters that we've got to uh, prevent by fighting climate change by reducing fossil fuel use. It's it's the same. It, no matter which direction it goes, the solution's always the same: bigger government and less fossil fuel use. Another, I, I, I uh, another one on this that I really liked 
was he talks about the temperature in uh, Death Valley um, and how it uh, hottest day in Death Valley. And then it turns out, well, no, if you go back, Death Valley's had hotter days. But it's not just hot day in Death Valley. It says it's the hottest day ever in history. And it was recorded in Death Valley. That's what they had claimed. But then just a few stories down, they're talking about when they start talking about, oh, we got to get rid of the temperature. We've got to start talking about uh, a different thing that, you know, the heat index, whatever you want to call it. Uh, instead of talking about temperatures, we talk about how hot it feels. And so yeah. he goes down and he starts talking about, uh, what is it, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, one of those countries there, um, uh, maybe Egypt. And they talk about, oh, my God, it, it was 100. It, it felt like 154, felt like 154 degrees because of the temperature combined with the, the uh, humidity. And uh, how that's unlivable. And then Malloy goes and shows, well, just a few years ago, it didn't feel like 154 degrees. It was 157 degrees. Yeah. Recorded. Uh, so not only did that bust the idea that what was recorded in Death Valley is the hottest ever, but it also busts the idea that, A, these are unique. And B, you need some kind of different measurement system. Yeah. And, you know, that Death Valley thing, I want to point out, back around 2002, 2004, I believe it was, they put a new weather station in Death Valley. Not an official one, just a new one. They put it over in the Badwater Basin, which is um, west of the official location at the visitor center, where they recorded the official temperature in 1931. Well, guess what? That place in the Badwater Basin is even lower below sea level than the one at the visitor center. And as anyone who knows that even a shred of meteorology knows that the lower you go in elevation in Death Valley, the hotter it gets. And it's called the, the Badwater Basin Weather Station. It's an automated weather station. And I, myself and many other skeptics believe that was placed there on purpose to capture a new record high temperature in the present so that they could say, look, climate change is making the temperatures hotter in Death Valley. Never mind that only a few souls live there. Never mind that it's irrelevant in our daily life. They want to be able to claim that temperature record. Well, I, since you've mentioned that, Anthony, I wonder, uh, I haven't been there. I've never visited. Uh, any place called Death Valley doesn't sound very attractive to me. So it's not a place like I'm, I'm saying, oh, this is where we should take our summer vacation. Um, but oh, what do you see next week's show? I've got a doozy for this one. <laughs> oh, now you're, you're assuming we're going to have a show next week as opposed to being that's right under that, climate that, emergency. That could be. Right? We may get shut down by the Biden administration for yeah. spreading disinformation. But before, be before we're shut down, I just want to say you said that they set it up at a visitor center. I'm wondering if there's even some urban heat island going on there. How close is it to whatever Adobe brick building or whatever they did? Oh, well, they, I can tell you, there. I visited that station. It is an MMTS sensor, an electronic one on a pole. It's just a few feet from the sidewalk. And it's also, it's <laughs> about course. it's about 20 feet from uh, a giant wall on the visitor center, a brick wall. Okay. Mm -hmm. That not, visitor center and that sidewalk was not there in 1931. Just was yeah. not there. No, anyway, so, 
they, they, they basically created a, a site that was as badly uh, placed as possible. And now they want to say it's setting records. Yeah. Yep. See, this is the links I go to, folks. I travel to Death Valley to look at weather stations. A better man. People than call me crazy. All right, let's get on to our main topic. The main topic this week is a sad and bad. Will Biden and the UN declare a climate emergency? Now, I've got a post up on WWT about this, and we've been looking at the chatter that's been going on, and the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, the messaging, the placement of things. Now, it's it's very possible that this coming week we might see him declare a climate emergency. And here's here's my thinking. First of all, he stopped short just a few days ago of declaring a climate emergency and said that, well, I we've already virtually declared a climate emergency. Well, this enraged all of the, the climate alarmists out there. It just totally enraged them because they demand that he declare a climate emergency because they're absolutely sure there's an emergency out there. So it's really, really pissed them off. And so what that means is they're going to double down on attacking the White House, attacking this virtual declaration, and they're going to push him over the edge, most likely. They're going to push him over the edge. And what's going to likely happen, there's going to be three different things that they're going to use for the justification of this. Number one, somewhere around the 15th, NOAA is going to introduce their monthly climate report. And this is likely going to show some unprecedented temperatures around the globe. It's going to show, you know, hottest ever this, hottest ever that. Uh, never mind that we only have about 100 years or so of records. You know, they're, they're going to make this a planet-wide type disaster in the way that they, they frame this. So there, there's going to be that. And that in itself might be justification. But then they're probably going to talk about Antarctica. Now, this has been through the news all this week. If you follow the news on climate alarmism, Antarctica is supposedly melting. And we've had literally dozens of stories in the mainstream media talking about this. And, you know, they're really ramping up the alarm. Here's a selection of some of them, you know. Arctic, Arctic, Antarctic sea ice hitting record lows as the climate warms. Melting Antarctic ice could disrupt ocean currents. Ice sheets melting faster. Greenland and Antarctica is melting rapidly and driving sea level rise. Artificial sun may be required to halt the ice melt. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And they're basing all this basically on a couple of graphs, a sea ice extent graph that uh, is published by the National Center uh, for Ice and Snow, NSIDC. Uh, so here's one, sea ice extent. Okay, so look, the red line represents the median or what it's supposed to be for July. The white represents where it is. It, it, you know, but the way the media frames this is that the ice is gone in Antarctica. But look, it's still there. Yes, it's a little less than normal, but it's not gone. Okay, so there's another graph that they cite. And this one is, is just making them bonkers because it's the, the ice levels this, this year are greater than plus or minus two standard deviations. Well, that's science. It's math. It's greater than standard deviation. It's a disaster. You know? So they're talking about it being out like six sigma or something. Well, we've only got data on this back to 1979. 
how the hell do they know that it wasn't like this in 1931 or, you know, 1850? They don't. They're basing this alarm on just a few years of data from 1979 forward. You know, I want to see him. I want to see him plot the rest of the years on that thing, because I guarantee that there are years that are close to this 2023 line that are from like the 1970s, 1990s or something. And it's gone back and forth and back and forth over the years. I bet. Well, I actually got had a, received a question from someone who runs an organization I've spoken to about this precise thing. And he says, you know, what's going on with sea ice? Um, all my friends say this is terrible, you know, ocean, uh, ocean rise, sea level rise. Uh, well, hold it. Let's be clear. Sea ice doesn't contribute to sea level rise. It's floating on the water. It doesn't displace anything when it melts. So that's not a concern. If you saw Antarctica itself melting. Yeah. So that, I want to show. Wait, 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 let me finish, please. That would say something. But what we know is Western Antarctica and the peninsula, the smallest part of the country, is losing ice largely due to subsurface volcanic activity in the region. But eastern and central Antarctica is gaining snow and ice, offsetting the losses. Yeah, a lot of this compaction that you saw in that one graph showing the whole of Antarctica had to do with wind conditions, you know, because it is floating and you're right. But I want to show you, there are all, all these media stories are talking about temperatures. So let's look at the temperature in Antarctica. We have a, a, Nash, or a global graph. Okay. Uh, and yes, I know it's climate reanalyzer. And yes, I know the, the, the website is bogus, but these people cite this stuff, you know, when it's convenient. So we might as well too. Look at that. Antarctica is well below normal in temperature, but they're claiming that the ice is melting. Uh-uh. Ain't happening. Just not I, happening. I have a question for you, Anthony, because sure. uh, I, I recall not that long ago, there was a discussion about, uh, oh man, is, is Biden getting ready to declare a, climate emergency this is about a year ago and then uh and then it didn't happen so is do you think it's more likely this time around that he does it than it was like a year ago when there was rumors and rumblings about this happening well i think it's because we got a trifecta or more of things that are starting to show up uh, particularly with the, the hotter than normal july uh you know we had a whole bunch of stuff that happened in July where the media was citing, you know, the hottest day ever in 125,000 years and so forth and so on. And I think that was a real primer for all of this. But there's also a fear, you know, by the alarmists that they're going to lose Biden in 2024. They're not going to have a figurehead to push around anymore, you know. Uh, and so as a result, they need to get this stuff in now, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they're ramping up a lot of the alarm, in my opinion. But let's go. We have this one graph here showing about temperatures. And we've had uh, record heat uh, in July. But here's a plot of daily global temperatures for the United States. Where's the climate emergency? I mean, this is from the USCRN, the best weather network on the planet. It is well-cited, and it's, it's triple redundant sensors, and it's state-of-the-art. In July, we had a, an anomaly of 1.24 degrees Fahrenheit. Where's the climate emergency for the United States? There isn't one. Uh, globally, 
We've got a global surface temperature records for the last several years, all the way back to 2014. It's been flat for the most part. Eh, it went up a little bit. But that tick that we see in July over on the right-hand side, not out of normalcy. Not they higher are... than it was several decades earlier or several years earlier. Yeah. So it's just, it's hype. It's hype. <coughs> and I want to point out, excuse me, that there's a website called temperature.global that I have uh, plotted up on my website at What's Up With That, where we report the temperature every day. And as of right now, the global temperature, according to all the weather stations in the world, averaged and gridded and all that stuff, is 57.52 degrees Fahrenheit or 14.18 degrees centigrade. That's not global boiling by any means whatsoever. You know, it's over on the right sidebar there. Scroll down and you'll be able to see it. Uh, right there, right there. Real-time global temperature, updated every one to two minutes. We are the only website on the planet that puts this up on a regular basis. And this is from an average of 54,721 stations, updated every minute or two, averaging the temperature of the planet. Nobody else does this. Why? Well, because we don't want the people to know that it's only 57 and a half degrees out there, because that wouldn't fit the narrative, right? You know, uh, let's the, the 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 key thing is you think these three factors may get him to declare a climate emergency. Let's talk about what it means to have a, it's not a climate emergency, it's a national emergency due to climate change. The, the the president is given certain powers, National Emergency Powers Act, I believe is the name of the act, that when he declares an emergency for some reason, he he gains all sorts of powers that he wouldn't otherwise have, that the office wouldn't otherwise have, um, powers similar to what Lincoln exercised without this act during the Civil War when he suspended habeas corpus and all sorts of things, but, but more powerful. And um, it, it, the question is, First off, it's not clear to Biden, I think, whether he's actually declared one or not. He said he had, and then the, and then the reporter said, really? You declared a, well, uh, in effect, virtually we did. Uh, so, you know, initially he said he had, then he backed off that because it turns out he hadn't signed some document declaring it. Um, but, you know, Donnie's on here really to discuss the impact, what it would mean if a climate emergency, you know, if a national emergency on climate is declared, what kind of powers would the president suddenly have? You know, because we, we talk, our title is climate emergency, climate lockdowns. Well, yep. you know, let's get to the lockdown portion of this, not yep. whether it's justified, but if he declares it, what kind of powers are we dealing with here? Because, you know, we joked, maybe we won't be on the air next week, but I think that's technically within his power. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I, I was doing research on this, and I know that we've talked about this on In the Tank podcast in the past. Like I said, I think it was like a year ago that this discussion came up. And there are some things that are kind of like like generally outlined, and then a whole lot of things that are just left up to speculation. And maybe if you interpret things one way or another, then he would have the power to do this. But uh, so starting off with those couple of things, one is that uh, under this declaration, they'd be able to use the Defense Production Act, I believe, to basically fast track a whole bunch of different climate change related programs or projects, whether it's 
you know, uh, solar panel farms or wind farms or anything like that or any other things that could, you know, require the spending of billions and billions of dollars to, you know, help fight back the scourge of climate change. But then there's other kind of different interpretations of this. And this is I'm talking about articles from The Hill and CNN that talk about how under this declaration, the president would basically have the ability to limit exports or imports of chemical compounds that could uh, uh, make climate change worse or something. So it's like, uh, you're, you're talking about like refrigerants. <laughs> well, I think it's just fossil fuels in, in, uh, in general. And there was even one article I, I should have had it on hand, but I, I believe it was a CNN one that was saying that like, there are some groups out there, some climate change activist groups out there that are saying that under this declaration, the president would have the authority to just straight up limit or ban completely the production of fossil fuels in the country. So Oof. it's like when we're talking about that scale of stuff, uh, I wouldn't put anything past it. You no, know, I mean, because we're talking about an existential threat here, right? Like the, oh, all, yeah. the whole world is in peril. So what tools are you going to take off the table when you're talking about that type of threat? Saving, saving us from destruction. Well, so, I've heard, I'm sorry, Donnie. Well, I, I just know that, uh, you know, like at least on in the tank with Jim, who's in the background here, uh, you know, we talk about all these things that are labeled routinely as conspiracy theories, whether they're 15 minute cities or climate lockdowns or anything like that. But it's just like, if, Again, existential threat. We're all going to die. Why would those things be off the table? You know, and especially when we're talking about you know, if we do get in the realm of limiting significantly the production of fossil fuels, certainly gas prices are going to go up. Certainly energy prices are going up. And I just don't think that it's outside the realm of, of you know, uh, uh, realistic scenarios here where we're talking about, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, um, terms that we haven't heard since COVID, like essential workers or essential processes or essential jobs or anything like that. Because if I'm just using the scarce amount of gas to go, you know, to the park because I want to, or somebody needs that to make sure to get life-saving medical supplies to somewhere, it's like, I feel like that's going to also be like in contention here. You think gas rationing or, or, or the number of miles you're allowed to drive is going to be part of this? Well, if if we go down the route of limiting or shutting down fossil fuels or something like that, I'm not saying that that's where we're going. I think at the very least, we're talking about that Defense Production Act to, to fast track different renewable energy stuff. But again, that's World War II type stuff. That's but, not even COVID. That's. Sure. Yeah. yeah, no, of course. But like, again, the world's at stake here. We're all boiling era of global boiling. You've got all the UN and international groups all lining up between this. Yeah. I want to point rhetoric. out there's a belief that the world is at stake. The world is not. at stake. Oh, no, of course. I'm let's, saying this is their rhetoric, right? Let's let's talk about some of the things that I've heard that it would empower. He'd have 130 new powers or be able to use powers, 130 different things. And so I'm wondering if, uh, you know, look, during certain emergencies, the president or a governor can call on the National Guard to come in and enforce behavior, including um, uh, curfews, lights, you know, during the war, it was lights out. It was, as, as, as Anthony points out, you know, gas rationing cards, food rationing cards, um, all sorts of things. And so 
is any of that off the table? And if it's not, you know, maybe they even delay the next election because we can't have right. people spending fossil fuels going out to vote. We, we can't get pe people can't get to the polls because there's no gas. No, no, no. It'll yeah, it, it won't be suspended. It'll be all mail or like a some kind of an online thing, yeah, which, the, as oh, we so know, is a, a is Democrat operative will come to your door to pick up your, uh, <laughs> yeah. your right. Your, Linnea, your so, you're, so you're saying it's going to be even more free and, and fair and uh, oh, yeah, no, no, than no. ever before. Great. More, more, more transparent than ever. <laughs> The yeah, thing well, I, mean, I really worry about is um, fastest level censorship that might occur. Mm -hmm. You know, can't have misinformation us, out there during a during an emergency. Yeah, they may there there may be an edict that comes down that anything contrary to the message is counterproductive. And organizations like ours uh, at the Heartland Institute, um, my website, what's up with that? I don't know. We might get taken offline because you know. We're spewing well, this look information. What, look what happened during COVID. They didn't even have to govern the official, the official government. The federal government didn't have to declare that. It just worked with all the big tech companies in the background to get those things suppressed. Yep. If you're a doctor or a doctor's group, even a, you know, a prominent medical group like Johns Hopkins, and you publish a study that says uh, the vaccines don't work or the, the, the disease is not as bad as you thought, or the vaccines could have some dangers, it's suppressed. The government didn't have to issue an edict. It just worked in the background. And remember, the courts uh, recently said that, that the government couldn't do that. But then an appellate court said, no, it can go on until the case is heard. Well, if the case isn't finished until after Biden's the next election, we could have a lot of suppression. Yeah. And, it's and to called, that it's point, called being fortified, Sterling. <laughs> yeah, fortifying it. Uh, to that point uh, about this stuff being like voluntary, you know, one of the hobby horses that, uh, you know, Justin and I have had over the last couple of years is this idea of ESG and how that could be used to basically enforce an agenda through just industries without necessarily having to have some government mandate, right? In Europe, they're going to start mandating these things. But in the United States, it's not necessarily mandated. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, putting your thumbs on the scales to incentivize cor uh, corporations to go along with this plan. But generally speaking, people will write it off as, as being voluntary. But the technology is quickly becoming a thing where this stuff, you won't be able to run away from it at all. It'll be enforced even more and more. I I, mo I recently wrote an article, which might shock you guys because I don't do too many op-eds here, but uh, I wrote recently wrote an article on The Blaze that was talking about a uh, management consulting firm that uh, their like primary business is to help people be ESG compliant and to reach net zero and all of this stuff. They announced a partnership with Al Gore's surveillance satellite network that I'm sure you guys talked about before. It's called Climate Trace, which is like hundreds of satellites and, uh, and thousands of ground sensors that are there specifically to like track carbon dioxide emissions and then be able to use those to prevent basically greenwashing. Al Gore's biggest uh, um, issue right now with the green movement is that corporations are lining up to say, you know, yeah, we're being green, but they're not actually doing it. Well, his system, Climate Trace, is a way to, like, make sure these people are, uh, uh, you know, putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to this stuff. And now that technology, this spy satellites, essentially, is going to be used to supercharge ESG. So like the walls of ESG seem to be closing in on us. And that's as we've discussed and 
you know, the, the great reset and, and the most recent book, Dark Future. It's like that is a tool that's going to be used to shift society and push an agenda, uh, whether you, you know, whether a law is passed through the legislative process officially or not. So, yeah, it, it's and it, this isn't necessarily tied to the climate emergency declaration, but it's it's all trending in that same direction. Climate change is being used as justification to push more and more control over society, and it's getting increasingly granular as technology improves. Well, and we've said it before. Sorry. We've said it before on this show that, you know, it's so weird how every single major, you know, worldwide issue, whether it's, um, you know, hunger in the third world or whether it's climate change or whether it's COVID, they all have the exact same solution. <laughs> which is really weird. It almost kind of seems like they're just proposing the solution for everything, trying to find one that'll stick to mm -hmm. that they can force people to listen to. But uh, Donnie, before Sterling gives his point, um, I heard that there was some kind of a book or something that uh, might touch on some of these subjects that's come out recently. Uh, yeah, I wish I had my copy with me. Uh, but yeah, Dark Dark Future just came out July 11th, but it gets really into the, the technology, the fourth industrial revolution technology and the disruption that it's going to have on society and the fact that these ruling elite types from Davos to UN and, and these uh, big media corporations and all that, and even government, are basically trying to uh, uh, move the direction of society in the midst of that disruption by building into the foundations of these technologies, ESG, uh, DEI, uh, basically their agenda, their ethics and morality built right into the foundations of these things. So the Great Reset book, which is right over your shoulder, actually, it's right over my shoulder here. It uh, kind of is that baseline, that ESG, but that's just stage one. Dark Future gets into stage literally like two, three, and four of, of the plan here. But the, the, uh, the, the goal of it all is like, you know, this, I'm going to put on my conspiracy theory tinfoil hat for a second, but it's like total control over society. I mean, I was just looking up uh, an article that came, uh, not that it's not that old, but it was talking about, uh, it was a Time Magazine. You can now calculate your grocery list carbon footprint. And it was basically a firm in Sweden, I believe, that's working to get carbon footprint, the uh, carbon dioxide emissions that, that would be resulting from the product that you're buying. Information like right into the, you know, right under the nutrition label would be that type of thing. And it's just like well, when that data it further is available, than that. You know, these, these grocery stores, you know, particularly these ones with these reward programs or whatever, they track everything you buy. And I predict that at some point you're going to start getting a report showing up in your inbox that said it's just something to the effect of you purchased too many steaks last week. You know, uh, your, your, uh, your carbon, your carbon footprint is above the allowable level. Next uh, week, uh, you're only going to be allowed to buy soy burgers. <laughs> I'll take it one step further because CBDCs, so we've talked about digital backed, uh, uh, sorry, central backed digital currencies that are programmable. And then they could use this metadata essentially to do like a infinitely fast auditing of your spending practices. And if that data is there, there is easily they could put some type of limits on the amount of carbon dioxide credits or whatever your allotment uh, in any given spending period like that is very possible. And like I said, it sounds very conspiracy theory. But if the world's at risk, we're existential threat, we're all going to die. Why is that off the table? Well, right. you know, it only works 
if you have the digital currency, Anthony's right to some extent. If you use credit cards to purchase everything, they can track things. If I'm using cash, they don't know me from fly, so they sure. can't track what I'm purchasing at the grocery store. Secondly, I just I didn't have points, uh, more snarky comments. I, I'd say let's let's remember when we're talking about Al Gore, he did invent the global satellite system, so it's probably pretty good. That's true. Um, and uh, the well, I forget what the other one was, but it's 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 scary when you hear all this stuff. And you, it doesn't have to be conspiracy theory if you look at what the powers that they're given under the uh, National Emergencies Act. So the question is, um, the recourse we have, as long as we have elections, is the polls, but we also have the courts. But the question is, will the courts feel like they can even step in? Mm. You know, what what limits are do the are the do the courts operate under under the Emergency Powers Act? Um, um. Because uh, this could get real scary real quick. And we, you know, we did see it. We, we saw COVID, right? People stayed home. The, the, these are not, the use of today are not the use of the 60s that took to the streets to protest the federal government and the war and corruption in the government. Now they are, they are the use of, um, of Aldous Huxley. And they have, they, 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 they take the Soma, which I think they get from the internet and, uh, probably decreasingly television, but social media. And the government's all good. If the government's doing it, they're just trying to help you. And anyone who rejects the government's solutions or descriptions of the problems are the enemy of the state and them personally. And uh, the National Emergency Act, it, you know, that would put that on steroids, I think. That's mm -hmm. not... I don't think that's conspiracy. That's that's just the powers given. Do you think they if they have those powers, they won't exercise them? Of course they will. Yeah. Yeah. It's only conspiracy theory until it comes true. Yeah. And then um, they'll say it's a good idea and we should do it. Right, <laughs> that's that's right. how it works. And most so, of the sheep, I mean, people will will go right along. Of course, because they're scared to death. They've been scared to death by the media. But, you know, this whole net zero thing really boils down to us becoming a lot like Russia. It's really net zero. It yeah, means right. no car, no flights, no meat, no cash, no choice, no voice, 15-minute cities, no freedom whatsoever. Yes, it's Gulag 24-7, 365, right in your home. Ugh. All right, let's get to some questions. We've got some questions coming in from our viewers, and we've got a lot of them today. Let's see the first question, uh, which uh, I think should be pretty interesting. Here it is. Luke Starkenberg asks, what's wrong with the concept of 15-minute cities? Well, let's take San Francisco as a perfect example. San Francisco was supposed to be one of those 15-minute cities where you could walk everywhere, pick up your shopping, you know, come back to your apartment, you know, and live a life completely free of having to travel in a vehicle. You know, you can get everything around you within 15 minutes. Only one problem. They let the bums and the drug addicts take over downtown San Francisco. There's poop on the streets and basically, you know, rampant vandalism, rampant um, theft in the stores. And so the companies that are running stores downtown said, enough of this crap. We're out of here. 
downtown San Francisco is a wasteland now. It's Market Street. doesn't have any stores open anymore. Major hotels are closing. All this stuff. So what's happened? The 15-minute city has become an hour-and-a-half city because people have to drive out of San Francisco now to get basic necessities. Yeah, well, San Francisco I can tell you what you can eat, so you can't get foie gras there. You can't get all sorts of things. Uh, you know, basically, as you say, it's, it's made a 15-minute city <coughs> into an hour-and-a-half city. But I would say, in answer to Starkenberg, that if – People want to live in 15-minute cities. That's their decision. What shouldn't be the decision is the federal government telling them, you must live in a 15-minute city, and we're going to assign all cities that way. Mm. We're going to yeah. have speed bumps everywhere, so you don't want to drive. We're going to enforce it. We know what you should do, as opposed to, we choose to do this. Yeah, well, there's there's this article. I brought it up on a recent In the Tank episode, but it's one of my favorite articles that has to do with specifically with this 15-minute thing. And it's a Slate article, and it's called 15 Minutes of Blame. And the sole purpose of this article is to basically like chastise anyone that has any concerns over these 15-minute cities. And it's all just city planning and making stuff more efficient and convenient and all of that. And then like 12 paragraphs down, they talk about how we have an example of this going on in Oxford, where the city has established new traffic filters that limit daytime car travel between neighborhoods. And if you don't ask for if you don't have the permission from the government to go across these artificial lines or whatever, they use uh, face camera uh, generated like, you know, they'll, they'll target you basically with these camera, the surveillance systems and give you fines. And in it, yeah. it says like, so we're not, you know, they're not banning you from visiting your mother that lives on the other side of the city. You just have to drive a, you know, ride a train or, you know, take a bike ride or something like that. And you know that these fines start off as $70, but as the climate crisis gets worse, maybe it'll go up to a hundred dollars. Maybe it won't be fined at all. Maybe maybe it'll be some other type of punishment or anything like that. So it's just a, a level of control and a level of control that requires a lot of surveillance. So those are the things that come hand in hand with these idea of 15 minute cities. Yeah, so I think if you're oh, sorry, we always start talking at the same time. So like, <laughs> it's a feature of the show. There you go. Um, I think if you're, you know, an urbanite, you're living by yourself, most likely, Um paying a lot of money for your very small apartment in New York or whatever, then yeah, I can definitely see why, you know, you would want to be able to walk to everything that you need within 15 minutes. And for the most part, I can't think of a single city in the United States that isn't that way. You know, if you live, you might not want to because you'll deal with some crime and stuff, but if you live in New York or if you live in Chicago and you are living, you know, deep downtown, then you are in a 15 minute city. The difference is, is that they want to ban your option of driving a car mm -hmm. to get where to, you want to go. <laughs> Afraid no, that, of it going too far and being mandated. Luke, it's going to be. No, it's, <laughs> that's it's, not, it's, <laughs> that's like saying, I don't know, <laughs> like, oh, we're going to take out the First Amendment. But don't worry, the government isn't going to ban you from saying what you want to say. Like that's yeah. that's like that's absurd when, to suggest when, that they won't take it as far as they will, as far has, as they want. When has the federal government ever put the camel's nose under the tent and not brought the whole camel in over time? Exactly. Show me an instance, <laughs> right. a single instance where government a new government program hasn't grown and given the government more power over time. Yeah. Something that was put in place for a very limited purpose. 
It's failed to satisfy that purpose, but its mission has grown over time. What you're talking about is not 15-minute cities. You're talking about surveillance state cities. Yes, you're or talking smart about cities. Big Brother Orwellian cities. Exactly. When they tell you, you can't go from this segment to the other segment, <laughs> we've Sterling. had that before, folks. They had that before. In it, other, you know, I don't want to go too far, but... It, it's worse Show than that. Show us your papers. Show it's, us your papers. It's worse than that. There's, so there, you're talking about smart cities, which all of these WEF types or whatever, they have these plans. If you go through and read this, they have absurd things. Like not only is it trying to limit your carbon footprint and all of this limit traffic congestion, but they talk about the sensors that are going to be in the sewer systems that will be able to tell you whether or not the sewer systems are going to overflow. And they <laughs> outline basically these programs that will be in place that will send you text messages telling you when it's okay to flush your toilet. This is, this I am is not problem, making this up. Daddy, this is the All problem right, with, but, but this, I have to get this out. This is the problem with people who, and we talked about this on in the tank when I was on there, uh, like two weeks ago, maybe Donnie, I don't remember. Um, maybe it was last week. Yeah. The problem isn't when you look at things in isolation, you look at something like an urban planning for a 15 minute city in isolation from all of their other policies. And you're like, that's cool. I mean, fine. I guess if you can, without practicing eminent domain or something, uh, take buildings and turn them into uh, your convenient markets or whatever, every kind of bodega that you need within reasonable walking distance of um, housing, then you'd be like, that's fine. But then you look at what else they're talking about. You look at how they don't want you to drive a car anymore at all. And that is something that they talk about everywhere. And in Europe, it's not that much of a big deal because you guys live in very small countries and you are very close to one another. The United States is as big as several European countries. We don't like to live with the exception of our urban population, but very many of us do not like to live in an urban environment. They want to discourage people from living in non-urban environments. <laughs> they think that right. it's bad for the environment for people to live on a couple of acres out in the country like many Americans do. You so you look at that in, combina on, in combination and their policies like what Donnie was talking about and what, you know, you get like the UN stuff, um, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy freakish cartoon that they made um you combine the separate policies that they're talking about that they intend to implement and then it's a very different picture than looking at each one in isolation each one right. in isolation isn't that scary all of them together right. is terrifying i think all, any any one of them in isolation is scary because it's freedom it's yeah. a restriction on freedom. It's, is it's what all about. about restricting your freedom. It's about restricting okay. your freedom. So the people, they want dense cities. They want everyone living in dense cities along rail lines. So what happens is um, the rich can still go on vacation because they can cross all the lines. They can afford to pay the fees. Central Park might be off limits to, to many people because in New York, you can be in a different subsystem of Central Park. So, in your, you know, mm. who's going to suffer there? Urban youths, minorities who don't live in the ritzy areas of New York, they can't cross over because they can't afford the $70 and growing $120 fee to go into the next right. building. But but that's OK. Uh, you're you're wealthy can do that. Uh, you can't go see grandma who's living on the farm. Um, and they don't want you living on a farm. So uh, it's, yeah, I don't care if it's a 15 minute city in isolation. It's all restrictions on freedom, and I'm against it. 
Yeah, we need to move on to our next question. So we've got one from Chris Nisbet, who says, how much change to the climate would we get from a year-long lockdown of the U.S. population? Well, we've already done this experiment with COVID. With COVID, we had a lockdown. You know, travel was air travel was reduced. All kinds of travel was restricted all over the world, right? And, and Dr. Roy Spencer, climatologist Dr. Roy Spencer, hunted for the drop in temperature associated with the drop in carbon dioxide production associated, you know, with manufacturing and travel and so forth and so on. It wasn't there. It was undetectable. Hmm. And so a lockdown here in the United States or the world isn't going to have any net effect on climate whatsoever because it's not detectable in the signal. Um, and so the whole thing's a fantasy. All right. So let's go on to the next question. Uh, Riss Jagger asks, when a government can declare an emergency and court cases take years to resolve, how can resistance be more effective? Well, I'll, I'll start off and you guys can fill in. In Butte County, California, when we had lockdowns put out by Governor Gruesome, as I call him, uh, the guy who went to the French Laundry and had dinner with all of his friends while telling everybody else they had to stay home, um, the sheriff of Butte County basically said, enough, I'm not going to enforce this. He publicly declared, yeah, we're not going to do it. And so that's basically what you can do. The, the county sheriff still has a lot of power. And so if you can convince your county sheriff that these edicts are, in fact, just worthless, they can basically make the decision of non-enforcement. And I can tell you this, police officers are not going to like having to go pull people over for driving their cars. Can you imagine the arguments and the screaming that's going to be happening on those kind of stops? That's going to make you know a, a stop for speeding look like a cakewalk. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I'm going to need my uh, lawyer present to answer this question. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, no, but really, like uh, like Anthony said, um, as as important as things like presidential and congressional elections and stuff are, and they're important uh, whether you think that um, they're fortified enough or not. Um, <laughs> Most smaller towns, most areas can still get away with getting a very cool sheriff elected. And if you get a very cool sheriff elected, if you get a very good school board, if you get, you know, those smaller elections, um, if you get someone really solid in there, then you have a little bit of a barrier rail against you and against even your own governor's edicts. Um, I lived in South Louisiana during the peak of COVID and towards the end of COVID. And uh, we had the town that I lived in, we had a extremely cool sheriff and an extremely cool mayor. And they basically said, we're not going to do any of the stuff that John Bell Edwards tells us that we have to do. And we had it was like normal <laughs> when I would go to other cities when I would go to Chicago or something to visit my parents or or whatever it had to be. It was like visiting a different country because South, my little corner of Louisiana was still acting normal and everyone else was like, show me your papers when you would go to the grocery store. So um, it, it really, your local elections do matter and you can Good still point. have an effect on them. Good and point. courts can issue injunctions. I yeah. mean, lower courts, you don't have to get all the way through it. In, in, in many cases, You've seen this with the immigration stuff. Uh, you've seen this with uh, various social uh, legislation that's been passed recently. You've seen lower courts issuing injunctions, halting 
uh, policies or laws. Uh, and, you know, it gets appealed and sometimes the appellate courts uphold it and sometimes they don't or they or it goes to a higher court. But the point is, you don't have to wait two years or four years to get to the Supreme Court in a case all the time. Often it can be stopped pretty quickly. And I have a feeling, at least in my state, <laughs> since some of this climate lockdown stuff come down, uh, our courts would stop it pretty quickly. Even the federal federal courts here. All right, let's go on to our next question. Um, Douglas Pollock asks, facts show that some hurricanes weaken as they move into warmer waters. Is this because wind shear and not because of human CO2? Well, I can tell you human CO2 doesn't exist in these warmer waters. Um, I mean, it yes, it's dissolved in the ocean, but there is no direct relationship between carbon dioxide in the ocean waters and the hurricanes themselves. Typically, what happens is, is that uh, they move, when the hurricanes move, they move into areas of wind shear or other conditions that are not conducive to their continued sustained you know, heat pump action. Uh, shallower waters might have higher temperatures on the surface, but because they're shallower waters, the total amount of heat contained in the waters is less. So there's that. I mean, there's a number of factors, but I can tell you carbon dioxide on the water or in the water has no effect whatsoever. Far right. too far too complex of an answer. Just say climate change and move on. What the hell? <laughs> All right. Next question from Allegre29. Why does China pay $9.2 per ton of CO2 emissions while Sweden, which produces less, pays $129.89? Which sounds like a bargain price in a store, you know, marked down from $149.99, you know, as a carbon tax. Um you know, that's a good question. I would say it's because we have been, for the past three decades, been giving China a pass because it's a developing country. Guys, you have thoughts? Evidently, it's because the Swedish government's idiots. Uh, I mean, to, to allow that to happen, that kind of disparity, to punish your people in that fashion, to buy into that, uh, you know, it, it, maybe they're not stupid. Maybe they're just... Uh, Violent evil. I don't know. That, they evidently that, don't like their people very much. That's the discount that you have to give China to get them to virtue signal. If you if they were to give them make them pay any more, they'd be like, forget all this, forget all this jargon stuff. We're done. So that's that's just to keep them in the club by name only. Yeah. Yeah. And then the final question from Jacob H says, Do they really believe that we swallow all this BS? Well, some people do. I, you know, I have had interactions with people who are absolutely convinced the world is coming to an end, that we're going to die in a fiery, you know, end of the world scenario because of climate change. And these are people that don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the basic training. They don't have the logic to basically understand how the world works. And so they believe what comes down from the government. They believe what comes down from the media. They believe they're factual because they don't have the smarts to question it. And that's a, a really unfortunate thing. But this leads me into the final topic that I want to get to here about these kinds of folks being in a mass hysteria movement. We've got an article up on What's Up With That today, um, which is written by William L. Kovacs. And it, it is a, an astounding read. Because he points out in this article that there have been instances in the past of mass hysteria driving people to do insane things where these mass hysteria, hysteria events have no basis in fact. 
I mean, it's been happening since the Middle Ages, like the dancing plague, where, where people would be dancing to the point of they dropped dead. I mean, what? I mean, but seriously, that's the kind of, you know, the, the mentality that goes on with the, the, these mass hysteria things. Uh, you know, there was Y2K. There was a bit of a mass hysteria about that, that all of our clocks were going to get stuck. And, you know, ATM machines would stop working and gas pumps would stop pumping and all this other stuff. Never the tulip, happened. The tulips in Holland. Uh, yeah, the tulip crisis in Holland. They're, the tulips are disappearing. Go buy them now. <laughs> Guys, what do you think? Well, I think Sterling was suffering from the dancing crave not too long ago. That's why he was gone for those couple of weeks. So. <laughs> uh, I didn't. If I was, I was in better shape than you thought because I didn't die from dancing. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, to me, like I would be able to take these people so much more seriously if their solutions weren't all the the, the control over society. Even that, I would forgive them for if they also believed in the idea of a nuclear power or something why is the solution always these terrible ways of generating power when they have this one that's carbon neutral or whatever it's sitting right there that could be a solution that's a lot more feasible than this wind and solar but they just don't do it and the lack of that being part of the solutions i just I, anyone that doesn't include that anyone that's hysterical about climate change and doesn't have that in their arsenal of solutions i cannot take seriously sorry yeah I think the word that would probably describe it best is um, mass formation psychosis, which is basically where you get a bunch of people who are completely fixated on something and they become um, addicted to being scared of it, basically. Uh, and then it just spirals from there and they start seeing it in everything. They want everything to relate to it somehow. And I think that you see that a lot with climate change. Um, it's kind of like a um uh a environmental hypochondria anytime anything is a little bit different than what computers will calculate as the statistical average people are freaking out now because every single day the news is in your face about some kind of weather event happening um weather has always changed and it's often um had a whiplash uh that's just how weather is i think it's a it's a truism in every single major city in the united states that uh everyone claims this joke is their own city's joke which is that well if you don't like the weather now wait 10 minutes right that's every single city in the united states you get that joke um so <laughs> i think that that's just a, a truism of weather in general and it always has been um and so we don't need to be so afraid of it to the point where we're willing to, I don't know, throw ourselves into a volcano to sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> They're never willing uh, to throw themselves into the volcano. It's always no, they'll else throw us throw in. into volcanoes. Right. You know. All right. Well, on that note, I think after the show, I'm gonna go have a nice steak. All right. Let's hope we're here next week. I sure hope so. And watch out for what Biden might do this week. You know, I would be totally happy to be wrong about all of this, but the, the signs are there. So I want to thank uh, the Donald for being with us today and providing his commentary on lockdowns. And of course, Linnea and Sterling for your usual insightful and interesting comments. And I want to remind you all to visit climaterealism.com. Every day we are debunking crazy stories in the media about climate. Climateataglance.com, which has factual references where you can debunk a lot of this nonsense and energy at a glance.com but Linnea has put together some fantastic things 
about energy sources and how they're good and how they're bad and sometimes how they're ugly. In any event, I want to thank everybody for being with us today and thank our viewers. And I want to say that um, I'm Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow for Environment and Climate for the Heartland Institute, wishing you all a great day and a fantastic weekend. Bye-bye.